This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Caleb F., Amy, Amara, Winnie, and Sam VR. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with this episode's serious questions. Both of our serious questions this week concern Jonah, who we heard about in last Sunday's sermon. First, we have Caleb F., who asks, If God is not changing, how did God say the Ninevites would die, but then he saved them? Caleb, this is a question people often ask whenever we see the actions of God described in the Bible in a way that suggests some change on God's part, that God changed his mind or he meant to do one thing, but then he did something else. How are we to understand those descriptions and how do we reconcile them with the teaching that's also in the Bible that God never changes? Well, we have to start by thinking about human beings and the limitations of being human. As humans, we're finite, we're bound in time. Inevitably, we start off not knowing a lot of things and then we learn things over time. And so it's really impossible for us to understand the mind of God because if you think about it, God never learns anything. Like there's never been anything that God didn't already know. Nothing is ever new to him. And if that's the case, how do you describe the actions of God or the ways of God to human beings who really can't relate to that kind of reality? Well, the answer to that question is to describe the ways of God. Oftentimes, the Bible will make him sound like he's one of us. This is something human beings often do when we're describing something that we can't really enter into the mind of fully. There's a word for this, a fancy word, anthropomorphism. Uh, that comes from the Greek anthropos, which means man, and then morphe, which means form. So describing something that isn't a human being as if it had the form of a human being. An obvious example of this in the Bible is when the Bible will talk about, for example, God's hand or his strong arm, even though God is spirit and doesn't have physical hands or physical arms or physical body. Now, the Bible uses language like this to help us understand something about God, even though that only takes us so far, and it does introduce some additional confusion because it makes it sound like God is just a really big or really powerful human being. So whenever we hear this kind of language, we always have to balance it with what we know about God being spirit and not physical. In the same way that God is described as if he has a human body, he will often also be described as if he had human emotions or even a human will. And that's where we get to the idea that God could change his mind or that he could repent of his original intentions, even though God is literally unchanging. We just have to have some way to describe the fact that where judgment is promised, sometimes mercy occurs 
instead. Now, in the story of Jonah, this is especially clear because Jonah's not angry because God promised to destroy the Ninevites and then he changed his mind. The reason Jonah is angry is because he knew all along that God is merciful. Jonah says, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. So Jonah's not worried that God is going to change. He's worried that God is not going to change, that God is going to show mercy yet again because he is gracious, and Jonah does not want mercy to be shown to the Ninevites. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. And so in Jonah's story, we can really see that there's that tension. On the one hand, God is being described as if, like a human being, he might change his mind. But on the other, we see Jonah himself acknowledging that he knows the character of God. He knows the unchanging bent towards mercy and God, and that's exactly what he's worried about. And now Amy asks another question about Jonah. She wants to know, why did Jonah want to die? Well, in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah certainly does express this desire. He says, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He has that in verse 3, and then again in verse 8, he asks again that God would take his life from him. So, what's that all about? Why does Jonah want to die? Well, I'm not sure Jonah really wants to die. I think what Jonah's doing there is he's pouting. Like God has shown mercy to people that Jonah thinks he should destroy. And instead of being inspired by that grace, Jonah resents it. He's not happy with what God has done. Now, he would be happy for God to show mercy to him, but he's not happy for God to show mercy to them because they don't deserve it, because they are bad people. Now, presumably, Jonah imagines that he does deserve that mercy in contrast to the Ninevites. And so he's basically pouting the way that children sometimes do when they don't like what their parents have to say. Jonah is saying, basically, kill me now. I can't stand this. If you're going to give mercy to the wrong people, then I don't want to live in this world. And of course, God, like a good father, calls this bluff. Like he talks to Jonah and he tries to get him to question whether or not he is justified in feeling the anger that he feels. Because, of course, what Jonah should be thinking is this. He should recognize that he himself is a sinner, that he needs God's mercy. And if God is merciful, even to the worst of sinners, that means there's hope for Jonah. And Jonah should rejoice that there can be mercy for him too. Now, what's true for Jonah is true for us as well. Whenever we find ourselves feeling the same way, whenever we're stomping our feet or pouting, at the ways of God, resenting the good that God does to other people, we need to stop pouting and start examining our hearts. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this time from Amara. 
Amara asks, how did Adam and Eve name the animals? Well, the naming of the animals is described for us in Genesis chapter 2. And if you look at Genesis 2, you'll find some interesting things are recorded. It begins as a kind of quest for companionship for Adam. God says he's going to make a companion or a helper who's fit for Adam so that he won't have to be alone because it's not good for man to be alone. First, God brings all the animals to Adam, and Genesis says he does this to see what he would call them. So the animals are paraded before the man, and the man gives them names. He calls them by their name. The Bible says that whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam isn't just naming the animals so that they'll have names. He's naming them as part of a process, almost of evaluation, like seeing whether or not these could be his companions. But ultimately, they can't be. All of these living creatures, Genesis says, are made from the ground, out of the ground, and none of them is of his own substance. And so ultimately, none of them is a fit helper for him. Adam needs a companion who's made from his own substance. And so God makes Eve from Adam's rib. And when he does that, when Adam and Eve are united, Adam declares that she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, the Hebrew word for man here is ish, and Adam names Eve isha, meaning taken out of man. So in the naming, once again, of man and woman, we see something about their identity and their relationship to one another being nailed down here. Eve is a fit companion for Adam because she is of the same substance as him. She is made from him. And that's why when a man and woman marry, the Bible says they shall become one flesh because that companionship that we find in marriage is God-given. It is a gift so that we might have a kind of communion with one another. Now, here's an interesting question. Names are words that symbolize a thing or person. Right? When we give something a name, the idea is that that name somehow represents the reality of the thing that we've named. So when you're coming up with a name for something, you try to come up with the right name, the name that seems to fit. And that's the way language works. We want to think that our words somehow describe the reality of the thing that is named. At the same time, we understand that there's a distance between the names or the words that we use and the reality that they're meant to suggest. Obviously, in different languages, there are different words, and we can always think of words that don't really seem like they fit the thing that they are describing. And of course, names that don't really seem to fit the people that they are describing as well. Now, that distance between the, the name of a thing and its true reality, we might think of that as a consequence of our imperfection, our inability to describe things truly and perfectly. And that comes from sin. 
But in Genesis 2, sin hasn't happened yet, which leads us to speculate a little bit about the nature of the language of Adam. Like, what kind of names did he give the animals, and were these the perfect names for those things? Was there no distance between the the signs, the words, and the things that they symbolized? Now, of course, by the time that Genesis is being written, uh, a lot of time has passed from the days of Adam, and the language that Adam spoke in the garden has now changed and been influenced and corrupted by sin. And so it's impossible, really, to know what that language would have been like. But it's interesting, I think, to speculate and to wonder what kind of naming this must have been. Also, isn't it curious that even though God made the animals, he gave Adam the responsibility, the task of giving them their names? Why didn't God name the animals? Why did he leave that to Adam to do? Well, I think this illustrates something important about the relationship of human beings to creation. God made humans to be the cultivators and the caretakers of creation, to be like the the little kings over the world that he made. In other words, God gave human beings great power. But as we know, with great power comes great responsibility. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first fun question comes from Winnie, who asks, is God a boy or a girl? Well, as I mentioned already earlier in this episode, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, and so God isn't a boy or a girl. To be a boy or a girl, you have to be a human being, just like Adam and Eve were human beings. But of course, that does change somewhat when Jesus comes along, because Jesus is the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he becomes a human being, a man. And, of course, as a man, he had a body, a real human body, and he was a boy. He grew up to become a man, and that's why we sometimes call Jesus the God-man, because he was fully God and fully human. Our last question comes from Sam VR, who asks, Will you ever play an instrument in church? Also, can I play the box drum? Well, Sam, I should give you a little bit of musical background on myself. I was, in fact, the second chair saxophone player in sixth grade band. Of course, there were only three players total in our sixth grade band, and I stopped playing the saxophone by the end of that year because it was really big and heavy, and it came in a big square case that the older kids would use as a bench at the bus stop, and I was not a fan of that. I thought if I have to carry the thing around, I should get to use it as a bench, but the older kids saw things differently. Later on in life, I did take up a new instrument. I tried to learn the bagpipes, which I thought would be pretty easy. I bought a set of antique bagpipes, but apparently the bag was not sealed because they would never even make noise. 
The instrument that I wish I could play looking back is the cello. I had a professor who was a cellist and I always loved that instrument. I love the sound of it. I love the idea of playing it. And so in my imagination, if I were to learn an instrument, it would be the cello. Realistically, though, I think my my window of opportunity has probably closed on that. Now, your second question was also, can I play the box drum? Well, Sam, I don't know if you can play the box drum because I've never heard you. And of course, when people ask a question, can I play? That's a question about ability. You're asking whether or not you have the ability to play the box drum. I can speculate that you probably do. I don't know how well, but playing the box drum, I think, involves sitting on it and banging on it. And most people can probably manage that to some degree. So probably you can play the box drum. But if you're asking for permission, then of course you would have phrased that, may I play the box drum? But because you didn't, I'm not going to answer that question just yet. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.